All right, we're live. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's Tuesday, November. I, I never know my days. November 22nd, a little after 11 a.m. Central. Today, I'm, I'm joined by Hans, Gary Black, Alexander Mertz, and Richard will be joining us in a little bit once he's done with uh, whatever he's doing right now. So thank you all very much for joining us uh, on this panel. Make sure everybody can hear us okay, uh, see us okay. We're very excited to sort of start speaking about <laughs> i guess excited might be a weird word we are very much looking forward to speaking about the different things that are happening in the tesla world um of course the the stock price has been getting beat up quite a bit this year some of it macro some of it um things that are happening in the world of twitter and tesla specifically and elon and of course we'll be having an open respectful debate as always in the comments section uh, we try our absolute best to ensure every idea and thought is is open and debated, but any personal attacks will be zero tolerance. I just want to make sure I reinforce that. Uh, we're here to share ideas and thoughts and debate them openly. We're not here to attack people. So please keep that in mind as you... I'm sure you're very passionate and fired up about some things, but just keep that in mind uh, before my mods just ban you. <laughs> so... Um, Let's go ahead and get started with the uh, with a chart. So producer wife, for those that are familiar with the channel, we have a uh, producer now who happens to be my wife. Um, <laughs> she's great at both. And uh, here's a, a tweet that was shared uh, by Sora Mayer earlier today. And uh, it was initially published by Nat, Nat Bullard, I guess. This is a chart that describes the the median price target from the street this was posted by bloomberg so it's probably a bloomberg average and they've taken the median price targets of stocks uh, if you can see the list i'll read it off just some 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 companies here you have baidu you have tesla you have crowdstrike lucid um, and others and what this chart shows is what the median price target is so think of it kind of like an average price target by analysts out there versus where the stock is today and how big of a gap exists between the price targets and where the stock is trading at uh, at these current levels. So if I use Tesla as an example, which is the second entry here on the chart, uh, Tesla's median price target, so the analyst average, quote unquote, price that uh, folks have out there is $302 per share. Uh, but today, Tesla's trading around the $167, $170 mark in the last couple of days, which means that Tesla is about 80% away from reaching the, the median price target by analysts. And I think this might be a good starter to maybe prime the discussion around why is Tesla <laughs> beat up the way it is? Uh, let's talk through some of the ideas we have and then allow the conversation to sort of uh, take it from there. And I know, Gary, you have some thoughts around this. So maybe maybe you're the, the, the best person to sort yeah. of kick us off here. Um, a lot of the things that, that you say uh, might be counter to some folks that are very, very uh, high on the stock price and sort of taking a more a different approach to viewing the stock. But I think your insight is valuable. So go ahead and kick us off and then we'll turn it in conversation. Well, let's remember what stock price is. It, most people think of it as there's an earnings and then there's a PE. And you can look at that 80% called shortfall and say, how much of it is due to earnings coming down? And the answer is zero. Um, earnings are actually up year to date about 50%. And so you look at Lucid, Lucid earnings, they have no earnings, but their revenues are down about 25%. So all the shortfalls do the PE getting compressed. So I would argue that you know the fundamentals of Tesla have not really changed at all, meaning it looks just as good, in fact, better than it was at the beginning of the year. All of it has to do with the controversy. I would argue a lot of it is short-term Twitter-related. 
People are worried that Twitter is going to go bankrupt. And if Twitter goes bankrupt in the process, which I think that's crazy because Elon just can keep putting money into it. And that's what the market worries about, that he's going to keep throwing money at Twitter, which means he's going to sell more Tesla shares. And that's why Tesla is doing so poorly. And I call it the Twitter overhang. You could call it Twitter noise. Um, you know, when institutions who I talk to a lot talk amongst themselves, they refer to it as the Twitter overhang. And, you know, look, it's not going away because Elon keeps tweeting and he keeps talking about Twitter and he's spending over 100 percent of his time, it looks like, on Twitter. So that's what's causing that shortfall. And just throw two more numbers out while we're on this topic. November, uh, Tesla's down about 26 percent. NASDAQ is actually up about one percent. That is the worst month that I can find going. And I went back about seven, eight years um, for Tesla. And year to date, Tesla's down 52 percent. That's the worst year that I could find Tesla's had. So it's it's one of these things that until we get, because I know um, people are going to ask, well, wh what's the bottom? Until we get through the Twitter overhang and things change, and we can talk about what's going to change that, this isn't going to change very quickly in, until the Twitter overhang lifts. What do you think changes that then? Uh, I'm curious to sort of, since you've kind of started on that, on the thought yeah. process, what are the variables you're looking for? I think people have to get comfortable that while Elon has cut a lot of costs at Twitter, you know that there's a lot of advertising revenues that have walked out the door. I don't know what the number is. I would bet it's somewhere between 30 and 50%, but I don't I don't know. And it's just talking to a couple advertisers that I've tried to get some insight, trying to find out like, you know, people who've left or people who, you know, are still there, but they're considering what's going on. And, you know, look, people are pissed. Uh, people feel he's threatened them. You know, it started with the Nancy Pelosi's husband was picked up at a gay bar and blah, blah, blah stuff that started it off. And then you had Elon saying um, thermonuclear name and shaming. If you leave my platform, which pissed everybody off. Then you had the eight dollar a month checkmark, you know, disaster where you had, you know, Mario extending his middle finger at everybody. And look, that's just noise. Advertisers hate noise. And they, they, they pause. That doesn't mean they will never come back. But right now, they're just saying until this gets resolved, until we can see that the platform is safe, and they use that term, brand safety. Some people use the term product adjacency. Until those concerns are addressed, you know, it's it's it's, it's you're still going to see advertisers leave. So what has to happen? I think Elon needs to appoint a CEO that can turn the Twitter business around, which means somebody can keep the advertisers there. Somebody can um, get the subscription revenues that and payment revenues that he's so crazed because he wants to change the business model. Um, and, you know, somebody has got to be really good at technology because Elon won't hire somebody unless they're really good at technology because he's got a lot of things he's, he wants to fix and improve. So I think naming a CEO first would be important. I think Elon should just stop tweeting about Twitter. And like yesterday you saw this, you know, woman with her butt, you know, sticking back and a Twitter bird on the butt. And then you had somebody who was, you know, um, Donald Trump saying, you know, lead us not, lead me not into temptation. That's just, it's stupid, right? And whoever's advising <laughs> Elon, either either not smart business people or he just doesn't listen, but you can't stick that out there and not expect to offend people. So that type of noise has to stop. And it happens it seemingly every day that, you know, something goes up that I'm sure pisses off the advertisers even more. May I jump in here? Uh, are, I mean, first, you you thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, uh, we won't stop. We won't stop uh, Elon from tweeting. That doesn't happen. We just have to deal with it. And honestly, let's just face it. Whenever you know when that happens and the stock is up, I don't know if my camera. Fun. Sorry about that. I'm in a in a hotel. But can you hear me? Okay, Father. 
Yep. Yeah. Okay, so so he won't stop tweaking. We just have to get used to that. But let's walk through the, the different things. First of all, yes, there's a lot of noise, but there's also a lot of excitement. People are coming to the Twitter platform. New users are coming to the Twitter platform. It's messy. Is it nice to watch all the time? It's not. Will he sort it out? He will. Does this take three months or more? We'll see. Um, as a, a Twitter CEO would be a good idea. I grant you that. Now let's walk through the scenario of Twitter going bankrupt. Would it be like the biggest catastrophe ever? No, it would not. Do I expect it to happen? Not even 5% in my scenario, not even. But if it would happen, let's just say it would go bankrupt. What would happen? Most likely Elon would purchase it back at, uh, at the building, right? The ones that would really lose money are the banks that have their money in there. So, I mean, I, don't, I just don't want to write this Twitter bankruptcy on the wall as a bad scenario. I Again, I don't expect it to happen, but what the heck if it happens? It will just, you know, to be what it be, and actually for him be probably a very profitable affair if it goes if it goes bankrupt first. Can, can I interrupt uh, you back? Can I interrupt sure. you? So a bankruptcy would be terrible because the, the the collateral damage, the contagion effect, if you will, of people who are in the market to buy EVs hearing about Elon Musk Twitter going bankrupt, that would probably cause people who hate the controversy. You know, some and, and remember, a lot of these people are left leaning that hate the controversy of Twitter going bankrupt would probably cause them to not want to buy an EV. And so Adam, so people don't think I'm spreading FUD. <laughs> Adam Jonas raised this in a report a couple of weeks ago, and I still don't see EV demand being affected by all the Twitter noise. But I think allowing Twitter to go bankrupt, which I agree with you, I think it's less than 5% chance. I think if that happened, that would hurt the, the the Tesla EV brand because people will make the association and say, I don't want to be involved in controversy or I'm just worried that it may affect, you know, uh, Elon's ability to service the cars, uh, things like that. And I just think it would be a bad association if it went bankrupt. Will it go bankrupt? No, I don't, I don't think it will because Elon could keep selling Tesla stock and his ego is big enough that I don't think he'd allow it to go bankrupt. But that's not good for Tesla shareholders either. But I mean, with 75% of the workforce reduced, I don't even think he needs to sell further shares and I don't think it's going bankrupt. So let's just move on. I just want to jump in with the personal experience. I discussed this last night with somebody. I think it's actually interesting. I mean, you all probably think I'm not that stupid, right? I was stupid enough to never look into Apple as a stock, nor purchase any Apple product, just because Steve Jobs always parked his car on the disabled spot, on the handicapped spot, right? That was for me the no-go. So we just have to live in any product and in anything, we just have to live with a base of people that will not purchase a Tesla like I never purchased an Apple for a very emotional reason. And that probably was right already six months ago. They hated the billionaire and probably now they hate him because he said this and that. And that there will always be a base of people who will be against the product just because something bugs them. So, but there will also be so many more intelligent people that compare a Mercedes to a Tesla or that compare a, a Bolt to a Tesla and will make the right decision to purchase a Tesla. And in all your scenarios, Gary, and in mine as well, we never thought that the market share of Tesla long term will be more than 20%. All our models are on, on that base. Those 20% will not be leaving Tesla because of a crumpy tweet or because maybe Twitter is not as financially sound as we think it might be. Well, but you still have to grow and look, the, the expectations are still for 40% volume growth. So it's not that people will leave the franchise. It's can they continue to attract 
new EV buyers in the face of, you know, where Ford, GM, Volkswagen, BYD, they've all woken up. They've all said, look, this is where the future is. We have to put all of our R&D and all of our advertising behind EVs. So, look, Tesla has always been able to battle the competition as it came in. But I would argue the competition has never been stronger. So it, it comes down to expectations. And that's what you're seeing with the stock price this year. The expectations haven't really changed. But people's perceptions about future growth, which is what drives PE, have changed. And so if you look at where the street is, is forecasting volume growth and earnings growth, not me. OK, I'm much higher than this. Streets at 27 percent volume growth, 21 percent earnings growth over the next five years. So that's that's also being a drag on the PE. So when people are worrying about the stock price, they're worrying that in the future, Tesla's growth rate is going to slow down for whatever reason. And I don't see that, but a lot of people do. And that's the challenge when we talk about the stock so, price. To dig into, you know, looking, OK, where is going to be the bottom? You said that the Twitter drama is a big part of that. But then how much of it is the Twitter drama versus how much of it is just macro. So in the event that, say, we get a pivot by the Fed and the macro starts to take off, do you think that which is more powerful in keeping the price of Tesla stock suppressed? Well, macro is a part of it. And look, here's here's again the math. We can look at since the deal closed. OK, so that's since October 28th. Tesla's down 28. NASDAQ is up one. So the macro affects NASDAQ just as much as, as Tesla, right? So so you can argue, well, it's macro. So let's suppose go back year to date, okay? Year to date, Tesla's down 52. NASDAQ is down 29. T Tesla's beta relative to NASDAQ is about 138. So in theory, Tesla should be down about 40%, but it's down 52. So you could argue that maybe two-thirds of it is macro, one-third of it is, is pure Tesla. And I, I wouldn't quibble with that. So if the macro gets better, you would see Tesla rebound just as macro, you know, gets better. And, and, and I would say that is probably a true statement. But it's still a big delta, for lack of a better word, 52 versus 40, that Tesla is down because of non-macro stuff. And again, I would argue it's not fundamentals. You, other than after third quarter, you saw uh, the street reduce earnings estimates by about 10% because of China, mostly which I thought was an over, overdue, but, you know, that's the street. And I think th that is probably the big reason why Tesla has, from a fundamental standpoint, has underperformed outside of the Twitter noise is because people worry about China. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing any sort of signals from Tesla in China? Because there was, there was a tweet that you put out, Gary, about... Um, it's not necessarily that they they have a lack of demand, but they have a they have competition, right, and it's right. one of those things where some of the price movements that they're doing in China is a reflection of that. Uh, are you so so? What sort of things are you seeing out of that out of that region? And do you think that Tesla has pricing power, say, into the next couple of years to be able to survive the competition? How do you think about that? Look, I don't think they're going to have to cut price again this year. And there's been all kinds of stuff in the last 24 hours. There was another weekly data point. We saw that 14.4 thousand um, new Teslas were registered in the week ending, I guess, the 20th. And that was a good data point. That was the highest we've had this quarter. They're on track to do 70,000 for October, November in China. So this excludes exports. That would be the highest first two-month total 
ever that I can find in China. Okay, so that's positive. Um, we know they cut price on October 24th and they, they wanted to get the Model Y short range or standard range down below 300,000 won, which they did so that they would qualify for the 12,000 won um, subsidy, which goes goes away, by the way, at the end of December. So you should see a whole bunch of orders come in. And there's a big difference between sales and orders. But in terms of sales, we've seen good sales through the, uh, November 20th. But the orders, we don't know what the orders are, okay? Because that's not something Tesla discloses. So what I'm expecting is you're going to see a bunch of orders because the Chinese consumer is very smart. They all go on the internet and they all talk about this stuff. They know that 12,001 subsidy is going away. That's about 4%. And my bet is you'll see a flood of orders in the next couple of weeks because they, they want to get get their 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 Tesla in before December 31st. So they get that extra 12,001. So I haven't seen any anything that causes me to get nervous about China. I think they've done exactly what they should have done. And they're using other demand levers to, to pull demand in, not not related to price. So they reinstated their referral program. They're giving away free supercharging. You know, they're doing stuff free and not free, but discounts on insurance if you buy a Tesla. I think that's all what you should be doing. So I don't expect them to cut price, but there is definitely a, I don't say less than 20 percent, but it, but it's probably around 20 um, that they will cut price again before the end of the year. But I think there's an 80 percent chance they won't cut price because they just cut price on October 24th. And it looks like the deliveries are pretty good. You know, since that price cut happened, I can't see the orders, though, which you just don't know how many orders are getting in. You know, deliveries lag orders. And there seem to be more ships out than ever. Right. I, right. I, I think I read yesterday 25 or I mean, a huge amount of ships on the way to all different destinations. So, so take big picture. So Zach on the third quarter call said he believes deliveries will be just under 50 percent growth year over year. The good news is the street doesn't expect anywhere near 50%. The street is looking for about 430,000 units for fourth quarter, which would put the year over year number at about 43,44. So the street doesn't believe them. And I think at the end of the day, um, you're, you're right, Alexander, the, the exports plus the sales for China will probably be about 240 for the quarter out of the 430. That's a huge number. So I'm looking for about 112 um, of, of what we call local sales in China for the quarter, already 70 in as of the end of November. That's a forecast. And then about another 125 to 130 of exports, about 45 a month. And that'll get you close to about 240 in deliveries. And so I think they can beat the, the street's expectation for fourth quarter. And to me, you know, what, what is the callus that's going to make people start to realize that Tesla is doing just fine? I think they beat on the fourth quarter volume numbers. Remember, they missed on the third quarter volume numbers. And I think that will help the stock. But you got to get rid of the Twitter noise in order for the stock to respond to that. So fundamentally, big picture, I think the fundamentals are fine. And again, I go back to revisions, which is how much the estimates have come up by for the street. They're up 50% year to date even though they're down about 10% since the end of the third quarter, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, yeah, does. it does. So it's, I, I mean, mean, I, I, mean think but I just, go ahead, please. No, please. No, I, I just wanted to recall because Gary, when you said that date, I thought about it. It's true. When he walked in with that sink, that's not even four weeks ago. You know, I mean, it, it just, it feels <laughs> like forever. It's been four weeks. 
It's been four Let weeks. That's been a long four weeks, Alexander. Again, I I just don't know who's advising him. And and look, maybe the people are advising him, and he's not listening. To your point, he tweets what he wants to tweet. Um, but why piss off the advertisers? Even if you have a goal of fifty percent advertising, fifty percent subscriptions, you still have to keep the advertiser. And maybe his view is, hey, look, if I get the eyeballs in, meaning the you know the the, the monetizable DAUs. And the, the subscribe the advertisers come back. That may be true, but advertisers worry per, perhaps you know irrationally about product placement and, and where, where which ads are where which which tweets are going to be next to their their products. And when they're worried about quote unquote brand safety, it doesn't matter if you know Twitter users are up to two seventy or two hundred and eighty million. They were like two thirty seven or two thirty eight after second quarter. They won't come back unless they feel that the platform is safe. And so he's got to do a better job of making advertisers feel that their products are not going to be next to somebody who's tweeting violence or, you know, religious stuff or, you know, things that, that, that they're just bad. OK, so that's that's the challenge. One of the one of the things that I find really interesting, this is sort of like the lens that I'm viewing that dynamic of advertisers being afraid or there being some fear around Twitter's um, brand safety. So you guys tell me if I'm thinking about this incorrectly, because I think ultimately it comes down to how much money can the ad maker make? So the World Cup in Qatar. So if, if I think about that event. Qatar, I would argue, is riddled with some controversy around some of the way that they employ people. Um, they confiscated the rainbow hats from the Wales folks because, you know, being gay is not allowed. But boy, do people advertise for the World Cup. <laughs> so, like, for me, that's what I find really interesting. So you guys tell me if, if, if this is wrong. If Twitter and Elon can execute a platform that in the end is going to make advertisers money, does it really matter what his opinions are that he openly states? Like if those guys can actually make money, yeah. who cares? Yeah. Is that is that a fair statement? That's a fair statement. I don't think advertisers are against Elon. There's a lot saying, well, you know, he says all this controversial stuff and that's why they're leaving the platform. I don't think it's that. I think it's because, you know, this again, use examples, the $8 a month, um, you know, verification uh, disaster where again, you had all kinds of, they lost control. There was total chaos. And, you know, advertisers read about all these things and some of them, they experienced it. That's what could occur. And, you know, they know that 70% or 75% of the employees have left. So until somebody goes out one-on-one -on -one, and that's the way it has to be done and says, look, you should come back to the platform. We'll give you a discount to try it out. I guarantee you that, you know, it's not going to happen again. And you need some account exec from Twitter going out one-on-one -on -one talking to these people, they're not going to take a chance, right? If you've already left. Now, the people that are already there, they're probably getting a much better rate, right? Because so many people have left. Um, and that's why you're probably not seeing that much of a decline in the number of ads. But I would bet you the price of the ads have, has come, gone down dramatically. So just to sum up, I think it's three things that advertisers look at. One is, is, is brand safety. Two, it's what we call brand efficacy. Is the platform good for your brand? You know, for if you're Nike and you want to introduce a new sneaker during the World Cup, it's a perfect platform for that. And three, it's ad, it's advertising ROI. And, you know, you, you need people to go out and talk about that. And again, I don't I don't know if there are people from Tesla that are the account execs that are going out and talking to these advertisers one on one. But you need those people.
right? In order to get the folks to come back, in order to get advertisers to, to come onto the platform in the first place. Gary, I disagree completely with the whole line. This is this is advertisement 1.0 and we're moving to advertisement 2.0. If in a short lapse of time, he manages to get the programming up and getting that payment license, uh, I'm getting into government agencies in a, in a second, but if he gets that payment license and people can buy that Nike shoe directly on Twitter without having to be directed out of Twitter on the Nike website and doing their order there, if this happens, within the website, all the advertisers will be back and you won't call them advertisers anymore. You'll call them product placement people. They will be there because it's gonna be the smoothest, quickest shopping experience. And at that moment, I mean, I'm, I'm buying from time to time on Facebook. I'm buying from time to time on Pinterest or on Instagram. It's a pain in the neck. They're trying to optimize it. They're nowhere there. But if he manages to keep all that in the app, in the app where we have our accounts, our money linked directly to our Twitter, uh, accounts by credit cards or direct uh, debit from our bank accounts or even in the future Twitter bank accounts. This will be the place where advertisers will not only come for advertising, but for product placement. Okay, but you said if about 12 times and if, 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 if doesn't make it happen. And that's that's my frustration with everything about Elon. It's like, well, if he gets FSD to level four and if he can do everything you said, then the following. But it just doesn't magically happen. Somebody's got to do the work. Well, that's disruption. You have exactly, but that's disruption. That's where where the pain is, and that's where we're sitting. That's where we're sitting on the S curve for for Tesla revenues. Because I mean, if if it's only about selling cars, there'll be other car makers there. But if it is about really um, perfectly self-driving cars, then we're in a completely other league. And the same happens with Twitter. And that's just the one thing. That's why we're all keeping up with the sometimes fifteen-year-oldish behavior of Elon because he just has that larger vision and puts the money where where he wants to have it. I mean, do I agree that this is not the nicest moment to pass? Of course it's not. Like it wasn't for Tesla in, in, in 2017 to 2019. But fair to say, it's actually much easier to get Twitter straightened out than it was then to get Tesla straightened out. Maybe. I just think it's, it's you, you got a lot of big ifs that you're throwing out there. And if I'm an institution, my immediate reaction is I'm going to wait till the noise stops. And, you know, look, nobody knows how much money Elon's going to have to cough up to fund Twitter over the next year. I can make, you know, assumptions. We know there's like 2.3 billion of cash costs and expenses for the first six months. And let's say 50% of them went away. What I don't know is there was 2.2 billion of revenues in the first six months from advertising and another 400 million of subscription revenue. I have no idea how much that is. And then I know I have now a billion three of interest expense I got to pay that I didn't have before. So I just don't know how much money Elon's going to have to come up with because there's a mismatch in timing to your vision of the world and where we are today. Right now, he's the 92% of the revenues come from advertising. And you may be right. Maybe it's 50-50 in a year or two years, which is Elon's goal. But it just, it just feels like, why would you piss off the advertisers? I just, I don't understand the mindset. Why would you do that? Why, why rub salt in the, in the wound? I mean, I, I'm not saying he's not making mistakes. Loads, right? In the last three and a half weeks, more than on average. Um, but I also don't think that advertisers is the solution. You know, advertisers coming back is the solution. I mean, let's talk about advertising coming back is the solution for the Tesla stock to increase. Let's finish my phrase. Um, because the, the Twitter business model may take weeks or months to straighten out. But what I really have problems struggling with is 
why would this wait for such a long time on the Tesla stock? But that is currently the most exciting and noisy, noisy thing on the market, fair enough. I just don't believe this is going to carry on when the next big thing comes up. We agree with that. We, we think it'll lift. And I still think if he would appoint a CEO who is more of a business person than an engineer, not, again, not, not against engineers, I just think they, they, he, somebody has to go out and talk to the advertisers to keep them in the fold. And I get your point. He's trying to move the business model away from advertising. No, no problem with that. That's, that's fine. But there's a mismatch in the timing. That's all I'm trying to say. And it may take a while. Hans, you came off field. Uh, what thoughts do you have? Well, I mean, so if we're looking for an explanation of why is what Elon is doing so messy, to me, it seems obvious, and I don't see enough people talking about this, that the one and only most important lever is pace of innovation. And that has always been Elon's key to success in everything that he's done is pace of innovation. We have to move fast. And in the process of moving fast, we're going to break things. And that's why he said when he started Twitter that we're going to do a lot of dumb things, but we're going to move so fast that we're going to make progress quickly enough to cover up all the dumb things. And so basically pace of innovation covers a multitude of sins. And so that's the lens that I, as a retail shareholder, look at to understand why is Tesla and Twitter look the way that they do in the current landscape. But that being said, retail shareholders, we tend to be a lot more focused on, hey, what are the potential upsides? And institutional shareholders are obviously focused a lot more on capping their downside than necessarily getting optimistic and saying, okay, how how high could this go? You know, Other than Kathy Wood, you're not going to see that in a fund. And so uh, what do you think the right maybe balances between getting retail shareholders to understand the perspective of institutional shareholders and vice versa. Is there something for institutional investors to learn from retail investors? And where do you see yourself kind of in that bridge? Yeah, I take exception with what you said, obviously. Institutional shareholders aren't just looking at the downside. They're looking at probability weighted upsides and downsides. The reason we own Tesla is because we can see a $550 valuation. Um, and I would say the downside, I could look back at the lowest PE this thing ever traded at was in 2019, which is about, you know, 28 times. And I can really stress out my model and I get a downside of about 150, 160 bucks. So I have very little downside, but I'm looking at the upside. I'm not buying a stock because I'm trying to limit downside. I think institutions are far more realistic and retail investors, when I get into debates with retail, a lot of times people don't use numbers. They're just dreaming. They're saying, well, FSD is going to do this and it's going to magically, just as Alexander did before, it's just going to magically happen. <laughs> he's been he's been talking about the car driving itself since at least 2019. And it doesn't drive itself. It's still level two, maybe 2.5, and it still has issues. So I can't, as an institution, put a valuation for robotaxi in let alone that it can't drive in the snow or the fog, I can't put a valuation for robo-taxi when it's not going to work all the time. And that's an institutional mindset of, it's not we're limiting downside. We're just, we're not dreamers. We're not delusional and say, oh, it's just going to magically work. And that's the challenge. But what about the fact that you can actually witness the progress of the software? It's not there yet, but you can see forward movement. But, but how does it go from where it is today, which is a driver assist um 
uh, uh, tool to the car fully drives itself in all conditions around the whole country or around the whole world. It, it's overfitted, we know, in the Bay Area and maybe in Austin. But you, you take it to Chicago, it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't always work. So, so how do you how do you say it's just going to magically get from point A to point B because you're trusting Elon, which he's been saying for three or four years that it's going to it's going to drive itself. How do you just magically accept that? They don't magically accept it. We watch the progress of the software, the number of interventions. I mean, Farzad, like the best way is drive the FSD beta and see, are you using it more and are you intervening less? And for most of the people who are public online about their experience with the software, that's the experience. So it's going to get to RoboTaxi where, where if I If can... you can keep doing that, eventually it does. So you think it'll get to RoboTaxi at a point that's faster than everybody else where you can put some robotax evaluation onto tesla's valuation target you believe that even if it's not robotaxi i feel like i can fall back to the point that it will be monetizable value okay well look i believe it's monetizable i just put it into the ev demand and say look if you have a really good driver assist package that allows the car in good conditions to often drive itself. It makes the driver's life easier. It'll sell more Teslas. So I think the, the take rate on FSD, which today is about, you know, 8% globally, maybe 12% in the U S maybe gets up to 15. So I can model that, but for me to just blindly say, okay, well, the car is going to work 40 hours a week and it's going to charge this much per mile. And it's going to drive itself out and take people and pick them up. And that's going to be worth, you know, $200 a share, whatever people are using. That the institutions aren't going to do that. They're just, they're just not. That's just not the way we're programmed. We're programmed to be realistic and to put numbers on things and to come up with values based on realistic scenarios. And I guess the challenge I have is a lot of time people are just dreaming and they're saying, well, it's just going to happen. And here's, here's the production side of things that if it's, you know, you got 168 hours a week, it's going to work all these hours and it's going to charge this much per mile. I just find that type of math, like it's mental masturbation for me. <laughs> let me let me propose a, a different way of you know and we have richard here welcome richard hi richard um, good morning good morning doing? Good right morning. on time i'm kidding <laughs> uh i do have so we're talking about just to catch you up we're this is a fascinating discussion because i think this is why poor gary gets uh, a lot of hate yeah. that, he, that he doesn't deserve because he has a very logical way of approaching it but i do so if i'm going to frame how i think about this thing is i'm more on hansen's camp and than gary's and let me sort of talk through why so i think there is variables that are abstract in nature that um could be uh somehow quantifiable if we were smart enough to do it but we can't but so let me walk walk you through how how i think about that uh you have a, a person and uh that has congregated a bunch of ex the most talented individuals in the world some could argue or some of the most talented individuals in the world that have solved things that were deemed initially impossible so landing reusable rockets and making an ev company profitable from scratch oh and by the way not just profitable it's going to be the most profitable car company in the world in the next one to two years from the looks of it right so those two things already are insane <laughs> insane so then i think the retail investor in tesla that's 
um, you would categorize as sort of dreaming in a way, Gary, which I, I don't necessarily disagree with, but I do think there is a variable there that carries a lot more weight than perhaps the institutional investor does because it's proof of concept, right? And so th and then I think the, the, the way it's conceptualized is like, okay, if he's able to do that and he's able to take put teams, teams together that are able to execute against that and there's clear uh, improvements towards the goal that they're making, then it's just a matter of time. And it's playing that that sort of game. And then I think there is a second layer where there is a subset of the investing base that have invested in that manner, say, between 2012 and 2019, that were proved correct. And so then I think that ca also carries momentum for full self-driving. It carries momentum for the bot. Um, just to paint a picture of, of how I think some retail investors view it, just to give you some color. is that Does that help at all? Is that is that something sure. that... Sure, yeah, I get it. You just have to put numbers on things and you can't just talk concepts. An institutional manager is always thinking about how do I value the bot? How do I value robotaxi? And I'm not saying FSD is not good. I'm, I'm saying FSD is a good driver assist program, but getting from 50% to 90% is different from 90 to 99, where you can let the car drive itself and the regulators are going to let it drive by itself. And that's that's the struggle I have. And it's not that it won't get there. It'll get there, but we'll only get there at the same time as other competitors get there. We're putting the same resources and in. That, the yeah. And that touches, yeah, and that touches to a point that, that I wanted to bring up today as well. I mean, I know I've talked about it a couple of months ago, but I want to bring it up in today's context again. The one thing with Elon making noise, and again, I don't mind him doing all this noise, but the one thing is this pisses off exactly the type of people that he may need meaning the government agencies and the more quiet people of this world who have a much lower threshold for any crap like that um, and um, who may be politically influenced or not. I'm, I'm not even going there. But there is, for me, uh, a really ever stronger need for a second key person communicating on Tesla. Just And I'm not saying to be CEO, let's just make this very clear. If, if Elon wants to say CEO, he may stay CEO. And if that gives the, the, the stock exchange and Wall Street and Gary good night's sleep, I'm all for it. Uh, for me, this is more about somebody actively communicating about Tesla, about the good about Tesla, but not just prefabricated videos thrown out and here you take it and do it, but really interacting. Interacting on Twitter, interacting with journalists, interacting with whatever. I think the need is today bigger than ever. There is no downside to it. It gives all the, the leisure to Elon to be Elon. But as long as Elon is the only spokesperson for Tesla and currently distracted and, and good so be it, um, we, we need this and we need this more, more than ever. And that matters though, Alexandra. That's that's the holistic way of looking at things. So you could say the car drives itself and then Elon will say, well, but we also, you know, th this is this is pending regulators approving or some words that he used. Well, that's part of the whole debate. It, it's yeah. it's something you should think of in the beginning that it's not just getting the, the the car to drive itself, but it's getting the car to drive itself and regulators approving it. That's all part of the same discussion. It's not you can't. Oh, well, pending regulator regulators approving it. Well, that's it can't be an add on. It's part of the debate. Yeah, right? it's and, a and that's actually view. a full time. And, and that's actually a full-time job. You know, you don't get just government agencies one day say, oh, that's actually a cute little thing. Let's approve it. That's not how it works. And that's, it's, it's not working like that in any other government agency. And today, he has probably killed some of that goodwill. 
And I don't think he wants to make it up. I don't think that's his character, but what he should understand and what Tesla's board should understand is that there needs to be a person who is available, who does exactly that, who works this out, who works this out with the agencies, who works this out with the public and make sure that Tesla's image is not only Elon's Twitter tweets, right? Right. Well, you can't just assume it away. We, we hear it all the time. Well, assume they can get regulatory approval. Well, you just can't assume that to your point because of the goodwill, because of, somebody has to do the work to get it approved. You can't just assume it's going to happen. Yeah. Richard, go for it. Yeah. So uh, good morning. Um, so yeah. my impression is that, um, and this is directed to Gary, you're managing money. So I just see your perspective different than a, a, a retail investor. You have a fiduciary obligation to your clients. So you have a much greater um, concentration on the downside because you have to, because if you, I'm a lawyer, so I, 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 I counsel clients. So I understand uh, you know, fiduciary obligation. So I, that's my impression is that you have more of uh, not you particularly, but in your class of people that you, you're an institutional money manager that you have to be careful not to lose people's money. Retail investors are not so focused on losing money. They're looking at the upside and, and what uh, the stock can generate. So I think that's, in my opinion, that's a fundamental uh, difference. But I had a, a question about how you value uh, Tesla, for example. And I understand not speculating about things that may, may occur or may not occur, like robo-taxis, et cetera, like that. Because as of now, they don't exist. But as of December 1, let's say, Tesla delivers a semi. So the first semi is delivered. So how do you factor that into your equation in valuing uh, Tesla once there's actually been delivery of a product? So it's in my 2024 and beyond forecast that you know there's 50,000, maybe rising to 100,000 semis each year. I mean, institutions don't, I, I got to dispel you of that. They're not focused just on the downside. That's just not how it works. We want to buy stocks that are going to triple, you know, quintuple. Listen to Ron Barron. He is your classic growth manager. You want a stock that can go up threefold or fivefold over the next few years, but we're also considering the downside next to the upside. So when people ask me, where's my downside on Tesla? I think it's about 150. So the stock's at 168, so it's $20 a downside. Where's my upside? It's probably about 550, and we could we could drill down into that. So I got what 350 points of upside versus downside. That's a huge upside downside ratio if they're both 50-50 probabilities, which they're probably not. Okay, so that's the way an institution looks at it. And with with semi, we don't care what's going to happen this year. We're much more long-term focused than you than people give us credit for. When I try to build a model and try to come up with valuation, I'm using 2026 earnings or free cash flow. Some people go out to 2030, come up with a valuation. And so semi is in that, that 2026 earnings number. And then you discount it back. And if, if something happens, let's say, you know, um, the semi just never gets off the ground or Cybertruck is a good example. It never gets off the ground. What, what I as an institutional manager keep doing is I keep pushing out my forecast. So it's going to actually cut down the number if I don't think they're going to get out there in time because others are going to get out there in front of them. So we, we try to build semi in, but we know there's a limited TAM for semi, but I think I have about 50,000 in my 2024 forecast for semi at $180,000 a clip. Mm -hmm. 
And I don't care so much what happens in the short term. I really don't, unless it looks like it's going to impede their ability to get it in 2024, 2025, 2026. Then it's going to really start in, impacting my my valuation model. But what happens in this year? It doesn't affect it at all. But Richard, to answer your question, to answer your question a little bit as well, Richard, when I considered putting a little part of my portfolio, because obviously most is in Tesla, to somewhere else, and I mean I don't want to flatter Gary because he gets a lot of heat from me every day, but I mean there was no doubt in my mind that he was the fund manager that would get my money because that's exactly the attitude I want from a fund manager to be much more prudent and thought through than me, and to diversify a portfolio set up so that. You know, the singular risk that I take myself in the other part of the portfolio is offset by by a more uh, diversified approach with a with a long a lot more long term thinking. Gary, have you ever seen this sort of dynamic before between sure. the way that Tesla and retail versus the institution? Where, where else have you seen this? First of all, I don't think there's that much difference between the way retail investor and an institutional investor thinks about things, except that the institutional investor is going to demand more analysis. But in terms of the goals and the upside, I think most institutions want upside. They're not focused on the downside. So just number one, I think this this current situation, we saw this back in COVID the last time. And but that was more macro driven than today, where Tesla was uh, had a 61 percent drawdown. Um, it was over like 30 days in March of 2020 or maybe 60 days. And it took a lot for people to just be willing to bet on Tesla again after it was down so much. I've seen it with other stocks that we've owned. Um, you know, back in the day, I owned Philip Morris, and Philip Morris was getting sued out of existence by all the plaintiffs' attorneys and the attorney generals. But you had to realize that there was basically inelastic um, demand for cigarettes that you could raise the prices. So if you lost a whole bunch of lawsuits and you put those damages into the price of a pack of cigarettes, people are still going to smoke. And so that was the insight we had that caused us to say, you know what, all this litigation overhang, and so the word was back then, is stupid because they could always price away all the verdicts if, if they got hit with all kinds of lawsuits. They're not going to go bankrupt as long as they could price away their product. So I've seen it many times where a company's PE gets crushed because of some short-term overhang. And I would call the Twitter overhang short-term. But in the end, as long as fundamentals haven't changed, you should just buy the hell out of stock. So we added Tesla yesterday. We bought some because we just, you know, we still we still think it's a great investment. And fundamentals to us really haven't changed. And even though I'm a little bit, you know, I watch China and say, you know, there's some concerns there because there's so much competition. There's not a demand problem in China. If, and, and, and so when people say, well, can they sell every single product can, that they, they produce? The answer is yes but maybe not at today's price. They may have to cut price again in order to sell every single product. So as long as the fundamentals are strong, we would keep owning the stock, even though there's an overhang that we think is short term because of Twitter. I'm pimping out your uh, fund here, Gary, real quick. Do you want to throw a few more words while I have your thing up? <laughs> FFND. Future fund. Look, here's been the hard thing for us. So Tesla's down 52% year to date. Our benchmark, which is Russell all cap growth, is down 26 we had, as, as Alexandra knows, we've had between 11 and 12% of the portfolio. That's about a 300 basis point hit because of Tesla. And look, we've had other things that have blown up, but Tesla's been one of our worst performers. Um, and, it's, and it's really impacted the performance of our fund. But I don't get out of it just because the price is down. If anything, I want to buy more, right? But I do want to limit my risk. And if I think, 
and it, it, look, this is how portfolio managers get fired in the real world. If you're down, you know, three to 400 basis points versus your benchmark, you, you can get fired. And so that that's where I think when, when you guys say there's short term thinking, I, I think that is true. We're not going to get fired because they, 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 Dave Kalis and I are the, the portfolio managers. We own our own own shop, but we're not going to raise assets if we have poor performance. And so that's the challenge right now that we have to just stomach the fact that Tesla is underperforming and will continue to underperform as long as this Twitter overhang is out there. But at some point, the overhang goes away either because he fixes Twitter or he announces a CEO or he just stops tweeting so much and says, you know what, I'm going to focus on Tesla again. And all, all that would mean that Tesla can go back up to where it was. It's not going to get to 550, our price target overnight. But from a fundamental standpoint, people aren't looking at the fundamentals today. Um, you put a multiple of 28, 29 times on Tesla, and it's grown at 40%. You don't see those type price earnings to growth ratios out there. The norm for Russell 1000 growth is about one and a half times. And that's what I'm expecting Tesla to get back to. If Twitter... Uh, if Elon comes out, say, I don't know, in, in the next month or two, I don't know how realistic it is. And he says, hey, guess what? Twitter has it, it just posted its first profitable month in, I don't know, freaking 10 years. Do you think that helps Tesla stock? Absolutely. Because that would mean that the advertisers are not leaving at the rate that, you know, we skeptics believe they are. That would mean that or that he's getting new advertisers in because the the, um, you know, the number of eyeballs, the MDAUs are going up and so new advertisers are coming in because they want to be part of this look i think he'll fix twitter i just don't know if what the timing is and in the meantime this overhang persists because there's a worry that he's going to have to keep putting more money in. and to your point alexander it's it's nowhere near as bad as people think right i go through the math and i don't have him having to put any more money in if that four billion dollars he raised a couple weeks ago went to twitter in the first place he's, he's done for another year at least. Did you did you read those calculations that were circulating on on Twitter this morning that it may have been just to pay the margin loan maybe fall back yeah. maybe but again when I see this stuff on Twitter and I read a lot a lot of them assume the best case scenario in costs like down seventy five percent and you know the most favorable in, in fact I didn't see any advertising reduction in the numbers I saw they just assume advertising was the same as it was before that's not realistic you can't have it both ways. We cut costs, but advertising doesn't drop. We know advertising, at least the price per ad has dropped. We don't know how many advertisers have actually exited. We saw a list of all the advertisers that exited. We saw CBS leave for a day and then come back. But we have no idea how many advertisers are actually still on the platform versus where they were before he bought it. We just know there's been a ton of noise. Right. Yeah, that's for sure. That makes sense. Well, I would like to get just to, to one point. So I asked yesterday on, on Twitter uh, if there were any questions for today's panel. And funnily enough, there were two main areas and, and one little one. The little one was uh, we should comment on uh, Tesla's competition. If anybody wants to take that up, we can do that a little bit later. The other two big points were about uh, half and half. One, people very frustrated with the stock price. And Gary already said it. He thinks it doesn't go lower than 150 um and and has much more upside potential than than outside risk um but the rest was mainly on on governance and there were, people were really extreme like you know elon has to resign we have to do petitions to call for a new ceo we have to do a shareholder vote and whatever i just want to calm everybody down because um i mean I, i'm the first one always to jump on bandwagons to do petitions and, and emails and, and letters that that's not the question 
But, you know, it's not because for three and a half weeks, Elon was concentrated on, on Twitter. And it may take another three months. It may take another six months that we should oblige Tesla to fundamentally change their structure. I'm, I'm still very much supportive of the, the case that we need a, a key person, spokesperson for, for Tesla. I still think that should help a lot and should actually free up time uh, of Elon and have you know some really structured communication and interactive in, in, uh, communication on the Tesla subjects. But I'm, I'm completely against any of these major shareholder vote uh, calls or anything like that. I don't know what your opinion is on all that. I'm in your camp. Uh, to, as an institution, it would be a disaster if Elon were to resign as CEO of Tesla and so that he could devote all his time to her. That would be a disaster. The stock would be down 20% in a day. People on the institutional side love Elon as the CEO of Tesla. And that's why we bought the stock. And if you suddenly said, okay, Herb Deese is now the CEO, you know, heaven forbid, stock would go down a lot. I can't, you know, I don't know if down 20, but it would go down a lot. Because that would be a change in the strategy. And as you see, look, Elon has built the culture from scratch. It's in his likeness and it, it fits his personality. To suddenly bring somebody else in, it would change the whole investment thesis. So I would definitely not want to see somebody else. Now, am I in favor of him bringing a strong number two or promoting a strong number two? Absolutely. And we know, you know from the um, comp trial last week, James Murdoch brought up that you know there is somebody at least that they've talked about as being somebody who could succeed Elon. I would love to see that person get groomed, brought into a number two position and tested out in battle and give them some or her some key positions and key decisions they have to make. That would be great for the stock because everybody would say, okay, he's not the only person there. But right now there's huge key man risk with, with Elon Musk. It's probably more than any other stock we own. So I have a question on that. If we make it three months down the road and it's clear that Tesla is executing not only well, but like at the top of their game. And we've seen publicly that Elon is spending most of his time on Twitter. How does that change your perception of key man risk at Tesla specifically? And is your, would your opinion, do you think reflect that of all institutional shareholders or do you think there would yeah. be a difference there as well? I think three months is too short a time frame. You know, th th this thing is locked and loaded. And we like companies like this where, you know, they set their plans, they execute, and they deliver results, right? I think three months, six months is too short a time frame because you've got there's key goals that have to get accomplished over the next, we'll call it five to 10 years. They have to add, you know, somewhere between six and 10 new gigafactories to get to, we have a 10 million uh, unit forecast by 2030. Some people have 20 million, we have 10 million. Okay, so we need to see that happen where they select locations, they get them up and running, and they, you know, they can put out 500,000 uh, units per year. Um, we need to see Cybertruck get out there. It's in my forecast at a, you know, a pretty high number. I've got about 50,000 next year. I've got about 400 in 2024. Um, the $30,000 car, we call it the compact, that has to get out there. And that expands the TAM dramatically. So in order to reach our goals for 2020, 2030, we need to see some progress. And you're not going to see that in the next three to six months. You know, So I think that's too short a time frame. If we had a year, let's say, and some of these goals were being hit, these strategic initiatives, where you're buying new gigafactories or, or buying locations for new gigafactories, you see you know, the Cybertruck get launched, 
You see FSD beta get rolled out nationally. You see, you know, some meaningful progress on a $30,000 uh, EV. Then I would say, yeah, you don't, you don't need Elon as much, but I think he's important to all that stuff. I think uh, Hans's comment is interesting because I do think if, say, Q4 earnings gets posted late January and they just blow everyone's minds, let's say that they have yeah. a huge beat on all the lines, I think it starts planting a seed of some sort uh, that says, hey, guess what? He's got a hundred some odd thousand people there that are super talented. And within the scope of the entire company's operation, Elon's impact on a daily basis is very much very 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 small of course the vision and the long-term goals are, are still very much rooted in the crazy crap that he comes up with that he knows is achievable but most people wouldn't tackle because it's way too risky or it's just too painful but he sort of evokes that culture that makes it happen but i think it starts planting that seed because at some point the dude's not going to live forever mm -hmm. you know and i feel like if the company is set up in a way that it has all the cash it needs to survive it basically doesn't have any debt it's collected the best talent in the world and supposedly you've had a leadership team that has been shadowing Elon for quite a while now. At what point do they step up? At what point do, do, does that need to become the sort of uh, quote unquote narrative that has to start developing so that folks do believe that, hey, like this is he has an embarrassment of riches, literally. <laughs> so like how how can we leverage these teams to to make sure that the Tesla story long term survives? Even in the case where Elon decides to say, you know what, I am good with the CEO role, someone else take over. I'm just going to focus on design and engineering, and I'm just going to work on the stuff that I love because I deserve it, right? Like, why, why couldn't that be a, uh, a scenario in the next, say, one to three years or even the three, three to five years, right? It is, it um, is, but it's symmetrical, Farzad. I mean, you're, you're, you're painting the upside picture, and I would paint the downside picture. Let's suppose they miss in the fourth quarter. I guarantee you're going to see the pundits say, he spent way too much time at Twitter, yeah. and that's why the company has now missed two quarters Very in a fair. row. And so yeah. you, you can't just look at the positive things. you got to say there's this Only there's positive, this Gary, damn it. <laughs> there's symmetry here. And I would argue, you know, the odds of him beating versus him missing in the fourth quarter, they're probably close to 50-50. And so I just think you, you got an equal chance where if he misses, you're going to have all the pundits in the media and a lot of the institutions say, see, this is what I, I thought was going to happen. That's, That's fair. <laughs> now, now, Gary, I wasn't yesterday long enough in that uh, Twitter spaces from uh, from uh, Omar, where you yeah. assisted, and apparently you said you would like now a twenty billion share buyback. Did you say that? No, I said ten billion, and I've been. I, I think you got to walk before you run. This is a company that's never done a buyback before. Ten billion, and I I'm in the camp that they'll do it this year, but they may not because the uncertainty about the economy. I think if they did it, because the price is you showed on the very first chart, the gap between what I say value and price, in my mind, has never been this wide. And if you want to avoid paying a hundred million dollar excise tax, one percent of you know, let's say ten billion, you get it done this year, or at least announce it this year, and you can accelerate it. They call it an accelerated buyback. I would just like them to walk before they run. I mean, the math is you got twenty one billion of cash, you're gonna generate another four billion in the fourth quarter. And you probably have close to 20 billion that's going to be generated next year. And that's 45 billion dollars. 10 billion is nothing, okay? And it would send it would send the, the message to the the institutional and and the retail community. Hey, we think our stock price is just too cheap now at this price. So I wouldn't be surprised to see it get done in December. But 
you know, if it, if it, if it doesn't happen, should the stock price go down? No, it's, it's kind of an upside catalyst wherever it does happen. I think people get excited about it. If it doesn't happen, it's not going to hurt the stock. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. Richard, go that. ahead. You and had then a, that you also, had, sorry. Yeah. yeah I, I think Richard I, came I, off you. Or do you want to add something? No, but Richard, I think has his phone, uh, his uh, mic, uh, Muted. Yeah, you ha you had it on earlier, Richard. You went off mute. I wasn't sure if you wanted to add something. Oh before. yeah, I was going to say yeah. is that I still see the macro in 2023 is crappy. I mean, we're going into recession, so whatever we're talking about, all the good stuff, it's still in the background of a. I think sentiment's going to be terrible in 2023. So, uh, notwithstanding whatever Tesla does, it we've seen how sentiment changed from like what November of 2021 to current. That's like. A quite a distance traveled. And I think 2023 is going to be worse than 2022 in terms of sentiment. And that's going to be a big uh, headwind for everybody, including Tesla. Yeah, I'll take the other side of that, just because the Fed has already started to try to, um, I don't want to say pivot, because that's too strong a word, but at least signal they may go to 50 basis points in December. They've been raising uh, rates at 75 the economy is weakened, weakened a lot, and I don't think the Fed wants to go into recession. They actually believe they can navigate a soft landing. China, we know, is weak. Europe is weak because of what's happening in Ukraine and with oil prices going up. And I think the Fed is going to be smart enough to realize they have to soften the blows. And so I think you're going to have less of an interest rate hike in December. And I think they're going to signal that for next year, they're not going to take rates up so aggressively, and that'll help the economy and therefore, I think, you know, look, I'm not going to be fairy tale. I can say we we have a Goldilocks landing in place, but I think the Fed can get us out of this pretty quickly if it wanted to. So I guess I'm going to take the side of I don't think we're going to have a deep recession. We're probably already in recession, to your point, but I think it's going to be shallow and it's going to be over pretty quick once the Fed pivots. Mm -hmm. Hansi, we're off mute there. Uh, you want to add something? My question was just, in the event that we do go into a deeper recession, what do you think the chances are that we actually do uh, break, you know, you said the PE, that the, the lowest PE ratio that they've ever had says that 150 should be the maximum downside. Do you think that that PE can compress even further if the macro continues to deteriorate beyond historical lows? Well, again, it's E and P. It's, it's, it's P, E, and E. So... What I try to do is say, okay, if the PE stays kind of where it is, you know, at 28, 29 on next year's earnings, how low can I get next year's earnings if I really stress my model? And I, so right now I'm at 720, the street's at 560, let's call it. I can get down to about 540 in earnings if I hold average selling price flat, if I hold gross margins flat. And I only grow volumes at 30% instead of my numbers like 60% for next year because I've got Berlin and, and um, Austin coming on pretty strong. So if I have 30% volume growth instead of 60, if I hold ASP flat and I hold gross margin flat, but this year I get a number of 540 for earnings. And that's how I get my $150 down. So I take 28.6, which is the lowest P I've ever seen, times um, 540, and that gets you about 150 bucks. It could, it could be lower. I mean, you could definitely see a more severe recession and then nobody buys any cars. <laughs> but that's that's kind of the lowest I see. And look, they've, they've never really, you know, cut costs at Tesla like that since, I guess, 2018. Um, 
I don't see them doing that next year. Yeah, the the way I think about it, and then I'll throw it to you, Alexandra. The way I think about it is that if if uh, if no one's buying cars, I think Tesla is the well, best position to survive. <laughs> so it's yeah, like your I money's not safe them. anywhere. You're like everything's screwed, right? So it doesn't become a Tesla problem; it becomes a global economic problem. Um, mm-hmm. And within that standpoint, it probably makes sense to be uh, invested, or at least think about not investment advice, but thinking about putting your money in something that is not only part does isn't just financially secure from a standpoint of cash to debt ratios, but it also has a technology that's very much going to become the primary driving force in the car industry in the next few decades. So, uh, yeah, that's that's how I've put it through that lens. Go ahead, Alexandra. Yeah, well, I had three more points. First was um, I did the update of the Q3 financials for the 29 biggest mega caps and the car makers, and just I mean it's out there on my on my Twitter feed. I think even I pinned it. Uh, but just to reiterate it, I mean never has any other company other than Alphabet had the same stability and consistency of financial results than. Um, than Tesla. So I just want to make that sure again. And if there's somebody prepared for any recession, surely is them. I mean, they now have at least half an investment grade. Yeah, thank you. Producer wife is perfect, I have to say. She's just absolutely good. Um, so we're still waiting for the Moody's upgrade. That was actually my second point. So I keep nagging them. I still expect that, like I always said, 80% of my scenario was that that would come after the Q4 earnings end of January. And then we'll have the double investment grade, which would also give obviously uh, Tesla all the reserve if ever they wanted to take up any debt in case of a deep recession, which as um, Gary said, I don't believe either. So those were those two points. The other thing I, I wanted to ask you all, because just I have no grip on that, didn't we all expect at least one new Giga factory announcement before the year of the, uh, the end of the year? Wasn't there some talk about that or was I mishearing that? No, they announced they would. They would. They they do expect to announce something. So I that look that'll happen. Um, I think that'll happen. By the and any idea where you do you have any, you know, idea where you think that will be? I think it's 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 Mexico, UK, you know, maybe Eastern Canada. You know, so you have East North America to match. You know, um, Fremont and Austin. I mean, those would be my choices. I would think it would be something like that. You could have another location in China because they want to get to work on the $30,000 car in uh, somewhere else, you know, or Indonesia even. You know, there's been talk about that. Do you, I don't know. I mean, we talked that, about that and, and we didn't come to any conclusion a couple of weeks ago. Do you have a firm opinion whether the $30,000 car will be exclusively manufactured in, in China or... Could there be other production sites? I think it'll be other places. Look, it expands the TAM by 50%, you know, in terms of the average car price globally is like about $40,000. It, it, it really does open up Tesla. It, it, it's, it's a way of leveraging the Tesla brand, which is very high end, and getting people who are more middle class to be able to buy it. And so I think it's a huge initiative for Tesla. I think it should be up there in terms of priority up with Cybertruck which is about 20% of the market, pickup trucks. And I, I just think to me, that's like, those are the two most important things that if, if Tesla wants to get its people to perceive that its value is higher and that, that's not what drives them, obviously, those are the two things that are going to drive the stock price higher in the long run. Those two mm-hmm. initiatives. Yeah. 
Yeah, so on we've seen the Model 3 drastically increase the TAM that was expected for a luxury sedan of its size. So why do we not factor in that type of possibility for something like Cybertruck? And I keep hearing everyone saying that, yeah, you know, volumes are going to be extremely limited because the TAM for pickup trucks is just a lot lower. Um, and we don't see any expectation that it will increase the market for that segment. Well, so Model Y, if you think about CUVs and SUVs, that's 40% of the market, 40% of the TAM. Pickups is about 20. So it's about half the size of when they brought Model Y out. What's different, I think, about Cybertruck, it really will not cannibalize, I don't think, either Model Y or Model 3, where Model Y did cannibalize both Model X and Model 3. So it's almost purely incremental once Cybertruck comes out. And I agree with you. I think it's it's a huge deal. It's huge upside. I just don't know how quickly they can ramp it up if they're going to build it in uh, in Austin. I, mean, I don't know if they're going to build it anywhere else. But, you know, we just don't know how difficult it is to produce a Cybertruck, you know, a stainless steel Cybertruck. It keeps getting delayed. And that's that's, I guess, the risk. One of the questions I have, Richard, I'll throw it to you, see if, uh, if you have any other questions. And then also, uh, are you guys good for the last, say, 10, 15 minutes to just uh, yeah. uh, have the chat, do some questions as well? Um, if um, What else could go wrong? Because yeah. I, I, that, that is sort of where my head is at with this whole thing. Like, <laughs> that is like infamous last words. I'm going to keep knocking on wood here because I may have just awakened the universe. But the, the way I think about where we are is is... It's like a spring that's been overloaded right now, it seems like. like There's just so many, as I think through this entire discussion, so many catalysts to look forward to. The entire panel is aligned on the execution. The entire panel is, allow, is aligned on the, on the, on the uh, financial stability of the company and its uh, positioning in the marketplace. This is, it seems to me to be entirely a perception, a perception variable and, and, a, and an unorthodox person that's making uh, actions that are unsavory in, a, in an environment where the company, in, in this case Tesla, is still executing, it seems like, at an extremely high level. So, like, what else could happen? You know, what else could happen? And, I, 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 give you, yeah. I give you that. I think we have most of the bad news baked in, both on the macro side uh, as on the Twitter Tesla side. I mean, all the bad buzzwords have been out there. All the hysteria has taken. Um, I, I mean, it, can there always be worse? Yes, of course, there can always be worse. But I don't expect much more price action um, based on Twitter hysteria or whatever. I, I, look, it's, to me, we should be talking about what can go right because the stock price is down more than it's ever been in a month and a year. So let me just say that up front. Um, to me, to be focused on the downside when the stock is down more than ever just seems kind of odd. But if you want to come up with what are further risks, it would be that they cut price in China for a second time by a lot, like more than 5%. That would be perceived as negative. Um, and this goes to the, it had 14,000 sales, well, registrations in the most current week, and they're, they're headed towards 70. We don't know the order flow. You know, that's that's totally opaque to me. And when you read, you know, something like Troy Tesla, who I think does the best job at forecasting volumes, he believes the order flow is very low. 
relative to the deliveries. And, you know, he's got a new note out today on Patreon. You could go look at it. Um, I think the second risk would be in the U.S. You've got the new EV credit going in uh, of 7,500 on January 1st. Will there be people who say, you know what, I don't want to take delivery in the next five or six weeks. I'm just going to wait until January. And so they could miss fourth quarter numbers because of either China or the U.S. That would be negative. Um, I think in terms of like accounting stuff, you know, you got Bitcoin. Bitcoin is so low now. It's only $218 million on the balance sheet. They could write the whole thing off. And that's only seven cents a share. But you will see another charge in the fourth quarter for Bitcoin because Bitcoin reached, I think, 15.8 was its bottom. And I think the lowest carrying value was 17.8 in the second quarter. So you're going to need another 10% off at least if Bitcoin stays where it is. Um, on the other side, you know, if, if, if they can do a broad release for FSD beta, there's about a billion dollars, I estimate, in deferred revenue of the $2.8 billion they have in deferred revenue that is related to FSD. They could recognize that. It's a one-time recognition, but it's still a positive, you know, earnings um, yeah, increase, for lack of a better word. But it is one time, and people will back it out. So I just want people to be aware of that. And then there's one other thing that... Um, Alexander, you asked me about Warren Buffett before before we started. I just don't see Warren Buffett getting into this stock. It's just not his type of stock. But we could talk about that as far as that if you want to. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. want me to kick? Yeah. What, so what if he did? Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Go ahead. No, go ahead and talk about it. I mean, I don't, honestly, don't talk about he's, it. Yeah. He's a value guy, and you know, he's not a growth guy, and it's a growth stock. And you know, value guys. I was trying to define it for somebody. Value guys bank on reversion to the mean. Growth guys prefer. Or, or they they pray for no reversion to the mean, and you know Tesla is a you know pray for no reversion to the mean. You don't want the fifty percent growth to go down to twenty or thirty. It's not his type of stock for for that reason. That when he looks for stock, he looks for the the growth rates to be stable. Think of Apple. Think about Coca Cola. Think about Heinz. Okay, he wants where the growth rate is already reverted to the mean, and he can use his math to figure out is it too cheap. And that's why he bought Apple. That's why he bought um, Heinz. That's why he bought Coca Cola. That's why he bought Gillette years ago. Tesla so is not him, his type of stock. Huh? For him, one hundred and sixty-five or one hundred and seventy is still not low enough. Well, if he thinks the earnings growth rate or the volume growth rate is going to revert, and and value guys assume reversion to the mean. I used to work for one, uh, Sanford Bernstein was a value shop, and that's what we just did. We would just blindly assume that competitors come in. And, you know, push prices down and therefore anything that's extraordinary volume will revert to me. And then you have a steady state growth rate. It's not it's not the number so much an earnings growth. It's it's the volume growth that I think would scare him that it's still 40, 50 percent. So until it gets down to like, I don't know, 15 or 20, I don't think he would touch the stock. And then the second thing is Elon. You know, he, he doesn't like companies where the, the CEO is bigger than the company. He wants a good company where if the CEO were to walk away, the company would still do great. And that's not the way most people think about Tesla. Maybe it's the truth, but I don't think it's the truth. And I think that would scare the hell out of Warren. So for those two reasons, I don't think he's going near it. And third, all of his, every time somebody asks him the question, he just shakes his head. He smiles. He says great things about Elon, but he says, no, I'm not going to do that. So I don't know why people suddenly think he's going to step it up. I think people are grasping at straws when they say that uh, Warren's going to buy Tesla. Okay. Go ahead, Hans. <laughs> yeah, the only question I would have on that is, you know, a position like Snowflake seems to go against a lot of those rules. 
Agree. And so, yeah, just I think that maybe where the question is coming up is they see him making moves that would violate his own rules that would keep Tesla out. And so if he's if he's going to own something like Snowflake, then why not something like Tesla? Yeah. And my my take was like he came late to the game in Apple and he put so much money in it um, that there may have been a sort of a learning curve on that. Uh, he started intervening, negotiating first jobs, then with Tim Cook around the 2010, 2012, 13 area, then came the buybacks. And then it still took him three years to get into the uh, the Apple stock and build up slowly a position. It wasn't as if it was, you know, immediate. Um, and I just think there may be a learning curve now because Tesla's story is so much similar to, to Apple's story then. It could be. And look, I'm not saying never. I just think it's still too early while volume and earnings growth is very high. And when he does his calculations, he's going to assume a much lower, we'll call it sustainable growth rate. And I don't know why, you know, Snowflake, I'm not, I haven't been following. How big is that position for him? Is it just kind of a very small 0.47%? Yeah. I don't know. It, It just, it's probably something he gave some deference to his people and if they wanted to buy it he let them buy it but it just doesn't feel like his his and charlie's type of position and i could be wrong about it it's just it's not it's not him and and the people say well he owns byd well he bought byd 15 20 years ago and now he's peeling it back because it's gotten expensive you know in his mind yeah i I think the yeah i think the comments or expectation came from munger's recent comments where he was like extremely complimentary and he said uh, Elon's uh, creating a car business was somewhat miraculous. So I think people were hoping more than, you know, that it was any reality. I think he loves the business he's built, but that doesn't mean he loves the stock. And I think, you know, Charlie and Warren both can make that distinction. Great business he's created, but am I going to buy the stock? Not if I think volume growth or earnings growth is going to revert more to the mean. That's the challenge. And I don't know if Charlie said anything about the stock. I think he talked about the business. Makes sense. Um, before we go to the uh, the best comments here that, that y'all are dropping, by the way, thank you so much for for posting such awesome comments in the thread. I, I read some of them. Producer wife in the background is highlighting some of them as well. So she's going to bring up only the best ones. OK, she'll, we'll bring up as many as we can. But uh, Alexandra, any any topics you wanted to hit before we start hitting those? I know you had a list. Um, no, I think we're, I think we're good. I think we answered all the questions that uh, were sent to me, and I brought up all the ones I had on my list. So all good. Okay, perfect. All right, so let's go ahead, uh, producer wife, and uh, start bringing up uh, a couple questions, and then we'll try to get through as many as we can here in the last ten minutes. Uh, for Gary, uh, super chat five dollar. Thank you very much. Uh, do you believe Tesla has legitimate FSD competition? How do you think about that, Gary? Do I think it has FSD competition? Yes, legitimate. Legitimate, yeah. yes. And look. If, if FSD was already at SAE level four, I would probably say no, but I just would love to see it get from where it is today, you know, 2.5, 2.8, whatever the number is, where it's more of a, a driver assist product to where it really does drive itself in, in all conditions and in all regions. And again, I, I haven't seen that. And so I think others are, you know, they're spending more on the hardware and I don't want to get into any debates about radar or lidar all that stuff because i'll lose that battle every time but i know that people are spending more money and they're having they have more sensors and so yeah tesla has more experience more miles um more users but it's just it's interesting to me that it really hasn't gotten to that level four 
area where people say it's like a robo taxi type product where it drives itself. It don't, nobody would, would, would say it's in that area yet. And a lot of people say, well, it's because legally they don't want to be there because then it's a much higher standard. I don't, I don't, I don't agree with that. I think they would love to get there so that they could start selling robo taxis if they were there. They just don't have, they don't have the product there yet. And maybe it'll be three years, maybe four years, but you got everybody investing in this because this is, this is where everything is going down the future. So everybody's putting a lot of investment behind it. Any, any thoughts there before we go to the next question from anybody else on the panel? No. Okay. Next question. Okay. Quickly Ford and Argo kind of dropping out. Does that change your perspective at all? There's still 16 competitors out there. And look, why Ford dropped as they, they, they believe it's better to go down the driver's from what I read, they think it's better for them to go down the driver assist, driver assist path than the full autonomy path, which by the way, is where Tesla is right now, right? FSD is a driver assist product. It's not a full autonomy product, despite what Elon says. It's, you know, you, 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 they don't have it regulated in any state that I'm aware of as a full autonomy product. It's, 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 it's driver assist. So the driver has to be fully aware, ready to grab the wheel at any time. And I think that's where autonomy is going. I just don't think. And so that's what my model is based on. My model assumes a take rate. I assume about 12 to 15 percent, depending on the market, of take rate at $15,000. I assume it's that. And I build that into my EV pricing. And that, to me, is the, the conservative way to model. I am not putting in a, a value for robo-taxi that assumes 168 hours a week, some percentage of the time it's rented out at you know 25 cents a mile, blah, 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 and you get some valuation. I just I just can't get there. Hans, go ahead. You came up here. So if Tesla does launch a direct competitor to, say, Waymo in Chandler, Arizona, in just that one geofenced area yep. to basically beta test the product, how does that change perception of robo taxi future is it does it have the same hardware configuration it has today yes i think waymo would beat them because <laughs> waymo, waymo can drive itself right today and i think if if they were to do that i would think in in, in its geofence it's just in that one area i think waymo is going to operate better in that one geofenced area the, the beauty of tesla is it's it's a general solution so that once you perfect it, you can flip a switch and it works everywhere. That's the beauty of it. That's that's why Tesla has so much advantage versus you know Waymo or Cruise or any of the other products that are out there. But you know the, the, the software, not sorry, the hardware package that Waymo uses is far more expensive and much more elaborate than what Tesla has, which is Vision only, as you know. Okay. I would that's find it shocking if they did that, but you know, you never know. But it, it does sound like if they are able to so say if they are able to be on par or beat Waymo with its current so, uh, hardware suite, then it sort of changes the narrative a little bit. Sure. Would that be a fair sure. statement? Yeah, it would. But, you know, then the question is, look, I, I used to live out there. I used to live in Scottsdale. It's very flat. It's a grid. You know, it's not like driving in Boston or Providence or Chicago or Detroit. So, you know, could 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 you flip a switch and have it work anywhere? I don't think a test market in Chandler would prove that because it's it's very flat. It's a grid. It's you know it's 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 an easier place to drive. Now it's interesting as Waymo is now in San Francisco, which is much harder to drive, and it's not like a grid the way Chandler is. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out if you know Waymo can make some headroads in uh, San Francisco. Headway. Yep, makes sense. Uh, next question. 
Uh, question. If Tesla wide release full self-driving in uh, Q4, will it recognize all FS2 revenue so far in Q4? I calculate roughly 2.6 billion, say 3.7 million fleet, take rate of 8%, average price of about 9,000 bucks. That would equal um, 80 cents extra earnings per share. So is I don't know if uh, you're familiar with this, Gary, but would, would then Tesla have to recognize all full self-driving revenue in Q4 if they do a wide release? Mm, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, it's up to the accountants, but no matter what they recognize, they're going to have to flag it as being, you know, um, one time, for lack of a better word, and then the analyst like me will back it out. So if you show, you know, 80 cents, just use your number and additional earnings, I would back it out and say X that one-time gain because it's not recurring. You know, here's what the earnings are. I know most of the street would do the same thing. So they so can't they can't just make you know make their number quote unquote by by recognizing whatever that number is you know whatever the FSD deferred revenue piece is. So it's it's already baked into the price basically. It's another way of thinking about it. No, it's not that it's baked okay. in. It's just it's a one time game. It's like you know if they were to sell uh, I don't know if they were to get rid of a bond issue and recognize a gain on the bond. It's a one time accounting transaction. Um, there's no cash flow associated with it. Most people would just back it out because you're trying to come up with what is the recurring earnings going forward. So the street right now, just for example, is at a dollar twenty-six for fourth quarter adjusted earnings. So if they produce two dollars and six cents, and Tesla would have to flag exactly how much they recognized, just good accounting, and it was eighty cents. Then they would just hit their dollar twenty-six. The stock would do nothing; it would be flat. Got it. Okay. Makes sense. Next question uh, from uh, Stefan. So sorry. I'm so bad with names. You would think a person with my name would be good at saying other people's names. Nope. Uh, did we Stephane. overestimate the impact? Stefan, thank you. Uh, did we overestimate the impact of investment grade upgrade on stock price since two of the biggest firms like Vanguard and BlackRock already had a substantial position on Tesla? Maybe oh, I take Alexandra, that one. want to take that one? Yeah. yeah, I take that one. So Vanguard and BlackRock's position is mainly in their index ETFs. So they have to have those positions to, to replicate the indices that they propose in their ETFs. So, you know, that, that's no statement of them. It's not as if they can suddenly sell them or buy more. It, it's all linked to, to those indices, which is a whole other subject. I think we have to do one, one uh, live stream one day on index funds because I'm, I mean, I just hate that. But um, uh, the investment grade upgrade, obviously we had all hoped that that would help a lot. And we had S&P beginning of October. So we don't have yet um, the impact of institutional purchases but given the current noise i think it just you know went completely under and maybe when moody's does the second one so that we have the pair uh it may help in a more you know calmer market environment but it was certainly not the the big event we'd all hoped for yeah i i would second that i think at the same time that that was happening the noise started and so you had it become clear that elon would have to buy twitter and, you know, the noise started then. And I just think it kind of confused everything. So if I'm an institutional PM and I was waiting for that upgrade because I want to make sure that, you know, every position in my portfolio is investment grade, I'm still waiting because I just am waiting until, you know, the Twitter noise stops. And I think a lot of PMs who are first thinking about going into Tesla, maybe they've watched it for a while and they finally make the decision to go into it. I think the Twitter noise scared a lot of people off. Yeah, but then, I mean, one thing I want to add, fundamentally, it's still a big plus. If ever Tesla wants yeah. to 
take out any debt. They are now in the triple B investment grade category, which is actually much lower than they deserve. They should be higher up, but I mean, let's just uh, be, stay realistic for a moment. And that is about uh, 2% over uh, the treasury curve. So if you do a three year and the treasury curve is 5%, you'd pay seven, which is obviously much cheaper than it would have been with the uh, junk rating then. So why is Moody's taking so long? I know they're slow, but it just seems like they're oh. really slow. I think there's pride to it. I, I think, you know, we, we shamed them too much and fair enough, they didn't deserve any better. Um, the the analyst is not at all a leader in, in his field. The S&P analyst was always, you know, much more um, precise in his analysis of, of Tesla. Not that he was fundamentally right, but he was much more advanced than uh, um, Mr. René Lipsch from, uh, from Moody's. So I do just think they they had their annual last update in January and it will just come up in January. They're not making an effort to do it before. They will not be paid for it. So they will do it at the annual anniversary, which will coincide with the Q4 earnings. And then it happens or it doesn't. I still think it will. Hmm. And the buyback, the share buyback, assuming it does happen, Alexandra, how do you see the market reacting to that? It may be, I mean, it, Fundamentally, I think it's going to change the mood, right? It's going to change the mood that people will just think, okay, Tesla believes in its own stock the same way you bought yesterday, I bought this morning. Now Tesla is buying back the stock because it's it's reached a bottom at which it is uh, not resistible to, to not purchase uh, or irresistible to purchase. And uh, so the I think that is good. Will it have an immediate impact on the stock price? Depends on the size. If they announce it will just be four billion and we'll do it over the next three months, then it will be just minimal, right? In in the math, I think that's not even half percent of the outstanding shares, and so that's not going to put you know a huge uh, upside pressure on it. But I do believe it would be a good sign just because it will bring positive press back to the the subject. The, the retail investors will feel something's happening for them. And, uh, and I do still believe it's, uh, it would be really a, a positive overall. Do you see the stock move a lot on a, on a share buyback, Gary? Um, I don't know. It depends, to your point, the duration of it. If they, if they leave it ambiguous and they say, we're going to buy $10 billion, but don't give a time frame, it, you know, people take $10 billion divided by the float, which is four fifty. dollars that's 2%. That's probably all you're going to get. If they say they're going to accelerate it because they're trying to avoid paying the excise tax and they just mm -hmm. think their stock is really cheap it could go up by more than that because then people will assume they're going to probably do another one next year so mm -hmm. it depends on whether they define the duration of the buyback a lot of companies don't define it they just announce a buyback and oh and yeah yeah and, and explain a little bit because we get that question all the time on twitter and i think it's good if we do it once for all how does it work is it a press release is, is it an sec filing does it have to be done before mm -hmm. they start buying well, you don't you don't need shareholder approval. It's just a board decision, and the moment that they approve it, before they start buying back stock, they're going to have to disclose it. It's a material non-public event, and you, you'd see an AK or a press. You'd see a press release and then an AK. So they put the press release out. Um, it's possible they could do an accelerated buyback very quickly, like they could line it up and have Morgan Stanley execute on it very quickly. But I think they'd have to get the word out first to let everybody know they're doing it. I don't think they could just go out quietly and buy by stuff. Then you also have windows, right? You have the trading window will close two weeks before the end of the quarter. And so that's December 15th. That's why if it doesn't happen by December 15th, it's not going to happen this year. And it won't happen until after the 
um, fourth quarter earnings, which would be the end of January. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. All right. We're uh, 90 minutes in. Uh, I think we're going to wrap it up there. Hans, Gary, Alexandra, Richard, thank you all so much. Uh, super great discussion. I hope it was valuable for everybody. Thank you, everybody, in the comments for the great uh, for the great comments and questions you had. Super respectful, really good debates, lively debates. Really appreciate you all. And last but not least, producer wife, thank you so much for leading this uh, live stream in the background. Give yourself a round of applause, please. Uh, you did a great job. And yeah, thank you all very much. And we'll see you on the next one. All right, let's end the broadcast here. Thank you all very much. Take it easy, everybody. Bye, guys.